a series that we have titled Exodus. It is a study not only of the Hebrew Exodus and how God brought Israel out of Egypt, but it is also a study on that story becoming a framework and a reference in the New Testament for the greater Exodus, the greater Moses led by the Messiah. That's why we've added the tagline, how God draws us out to draw us in. This is the story of how God's people, who have been led out of the slavery of sin, have been led into the promised land of the kingdom of God. And we've already looked at the oppression of Israel two weeks ago, and then last week, Brother James talked about the the beginning of the story of Moses and the true deliverer. We're going to get to the call of Moses today, the, what so many people know as the burning bush story, his encounter with the Lord there, the mountain of God. But I want to say a few words about Moses' preparation for being the leader of this exodus. Before Moses ever gets to Pharaoh's court to say, let my people go, you know, God said, let my people go, he had already experienced basically two exoduses of his own. Brother James talked about both of them last week. The first exodus was when he was in the midst of, you know, uh, Pharaoh had, had told everyone, listen, we're going to, we want everyone to kill all the baby boys. And his mother then takes him, builds an ark puts him in the ark, uh, then puts him in the water, and he is delivered out of this terrible situation. He experienced an exodus. Of course, the sex, second exodus begins when he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite slave, and he goes and he, he kills this Egyptian soldier, and then he flees and runs for his life. In Midian, that takes place 40 years after the first exodus. Um, Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson do a great job of, of laying out this first and second exodus in their book called The Echoes of Exodus. You know, the second exodus uh, is usually used how not to do things. You know, Moses loses his temper and he kills this Egyptian and then he runs and flees away. And it's usually a story about how not to do things. However, the parallels between that story and the Exodus story that we were to be talking about is interesting. The suffering of the Hebrews is noticed. Moses is stirred to action. The suffering is relieved. Egyptians are killed. Moses flees Pharaoh to the east and spends 40 years in the wilderness. It is a parallel of what God is going to do for all of Israel. This suggests that Moses' story is a foreshadowing of Israel's story. The climax of which is God meeting Moses at the burning bush, which we'll talk about today. So Moses experiences an exodus at birth and another at age 40, complete with rescue by blood and through water. 
And at the time that he reaches the third exodus, the exodus of Israel, he may be having a sense of deja vu, a sense of here we go again. But God has fashioned Moses quietly and secretly into an exodus-shaped person. He had gotten him ready for this Hebrew exodus by bringing him through some exoduses of his own. And what we're going to see is that Moses' second exodus climaxes with his encounter with God at a bush that is burning and not being consumed. So if you haven't already, please turn to Exodus chapter 3, where we're going to talk about one of the most important stories in all of human history. And I do not say that tongue-in-cheek, and that is not hyperbole. It is one of the most important stories in all of human history. Let's first talk about God revealing Himself in verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see the great sight, why this bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This was just an ordinary working day for Moses. As ordinary as any other day had been in the last 40 years. I mean, he had spent decades watching over sheep. He probably thought, this will be my life for the rest of my life. And he was just doing what he does. As a shepherd, Moses always was going to have to be moving from location to location, finding water and shelter and food for the sheep. This particular Midian wilderness, Sinai wilderness, is an arid wilderness. So a shepherd, in order to take care of the sheep, has to constantly know where the water and the grass is. And on this day, he is on the west side of this wilderness near Oreb. Now, verse 1, Oreb is described as the mountain of God. Now, I just want us to know that at the time that Moses is there, it's not called the mountain of God. Okay? It's not called the mountain of God yet. This is actually a, a setup for us that as you're reading it, you know this place that is called the mountain of God, something's going to have to happen to make it the mountain of God. Right? So it's setting us up. It's letting us know. Moses is doing his ordinary thing. He's watching his sheep, and he comes to what we know as the mountain of God. Moses just doesn't know it yet. It's a cool little setup for us. 
Do you know what this mountain is going to be called eventually, right? Mount Sinai. And Moses sees in verse 2 a strange sight, a flame of fire and out of the midst of it, a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and the bush was burning yet not consumed. Now I'd like to imagine years later that Moses thought, if I had just skipped myself a lot of trouble by just saying, that's an interesting bush, but I got sheep to take care of. And just gone about his day. Wow, that bush is on fire. That's weird. Doesn't look like it's burning, but anyway, sheep. That's not what he does. Instead, verse 3, he turns aside to see the great sight. It's not just that a bush is on fire and not burning. We are told the angel of the Lord appears to him out of this bush. Verse 4 tells us it's God. If we can just try to put ourselves in a place where he is doing the most ordinary thing possible for him. He hasn't been setting himself up for this great day. He hasn't been preparing himself spiritually and mentally and emotionally for seeing God in a bush. He's not ready for this at all. This is just ordinary life for him. And that's when God enters into it. Isn't that what God does for us? Aren't you glad that God didn't wait until we were looking for him before he came looking for us? And Moses approaches the bush, and it says in verse 5 that God called to him. Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. And then God says this weird thing. Don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place that you are standing is holy ground. This is further proof that the angel of the Lord in the bush is God himself. You don't find any angel anywhere telling people, oh, you got to take your shoes off when you're around me. But God does. This is a holy mountain for a reason. God has appeared here. In fact, the whole area is going to be called holy eventually. By telling Moses to take his sandals off. Here's what I think God is saying. You can come near, but not too near, without humility. If you're going to come and interact with me right now, you better come with some humility. I'm not one of your sheep. I'm not one of your friends. I'm not one of your, your, your neighbors who you are about to interact with needs to be done with humility. And of course, he does. And up to this point, we don't know anything about Moses' relationship with God, do we? We haven't been told anything about Moses and God. At all. Yet here we, God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
God is letting him know that I am not just some spiritual force speaking to you right now. I'm not just one of the gods of the many gods. I, I'm, not, I'm not here just as some high spiritual being. I am the one and only true God of your father and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who's speaking to you right now, Moses. I'm sure Moses thought, thank goodness I took my shoes off. And look how Moses responds in verse 7. He hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So an ordinary day, doing the most ordinary thing, turns out to be the most important day in Moses' life. Because God reveals himself to Moses. I said verse 7 a while ago, that was verse 6, where he hid his face. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of, out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So after we got God reveals himself, now he reveals his plan. Here's the plan, Moses. He tells him in verse 7 and verse 9, I have seen the affliction of my people. Now, he also says, and I have come down to deliver them. Now, we need to understand a few things real quick. God has always seen in the last 400 years their affliction. Correct? It's not like God all of a sudden went, you know, I, I've been looking around the world and I just keep skipping over this one place and now I see it. I, I, I'm sorry, guys. I've been, I haven't been paying attention to you guys. Now it's time to do something. No, he, he had always seen their affliction. But this language of now I see and have come down, this is what we call anthropomorphic language, right? This is human language that we're putting on the spirit. God is God. The Father is a spirit. At this point, there, there's no flesh body of, of God yet. So, so God the Father is a spirit, and He can't even really come down, can He? That doesn't even make any sense. God, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. How can God come down if He's already here? So, this language that is being used is God using language to let Moses know, "I'm now about to act. I'm about to do something about this." I see and I've come down. I'm about to do something about the suffering of my people. And what will he do? Well, he's going to do what he promised the patriarchs. He's going to do what he promised Abraham. I'm going to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. And then God gives Moses some shocking news. Moses probably hears this plan and thinks, this is a great plan. 
Thank you, God, that you are finally going to come down. You have seen the suffering of our people, and you're about to do something. Thank you, God, that you're about to do something. And then God says, yeah, you're going to be the one to do it. Hang on a second. I love the plan up to that part. Up to that part, the plan sounds great. You're going to deliver, you're going to keep your promises, and you're going to deliver us into the promised land. I love that part. But this part about me being the one that you're sending to Pharaoh, I'm going to be the one to lead the people out? Not so sure about that. And he asks a question that men and women have always been asking in all of human history when God calls people to do something. Who am I? Who am I that you would pick me to do this? I can't can't do this. I'm not the one for this mission. I'm not the one for this plan. I'm not the guy. Who am I to be able to do this? And I love that God responds the way God always responds. He doesn't talk about all these wonderful traits Moses has. Well, you know, Moses, you are just an unbelievable guy. And I've picked you because you're so wonderful and you're so great and you're so mighty and you're so strong. I mean, when you walk in there to Pharaoh, everyone's just going to be wowed by you. Is that what he says? His answer is, I'll be with you. That's the answer to who am I. Changes the subject. Who am I? Oh, this ain't about you, Moses. This isn't about who you are. This is about who I am. I am the one that's going to bring them out. I'm going to use you to do it, but I'm the one who's going to bring them out. I will be with you. Interesting here in verse 12, the verb will be could be translated to be. It is the same term that is translated in verse 15, I am. It's the same Hebrew term. So he's saying, I will be with you. Later on, the I will or the, the will be or the to be is translated I am. There's a connection here, right? God is saying, listen, Moses, I am will be with you. I am with you. Catch that? And we're going to talk about it in just a minute. But everything that I am, Moses, is going to be there with you. Everything that I have, all of my character and my attributes and my absolute being is going to be with you. The success, Moses, of this mission will not be based upon your resume. It will be based upon my nature. That is so huge. That is so huge. How many times in our lives, and and this is a, I don't even have application stuff yet for us. But how many times in our life does God call us to do something and we start rolling down the list of our resume and why it's probably not a good idea? God does not call us because of our resume. He calls us because of who He is. That's why over and over and over again in Scripture, God picks the nobodies. He could have called Pharaoh's son to be the one to lead them all out. Pharaoh's son going up against Pharaoh. Now this would be like, ooh, wow, who do we choose? I mean, Pharaoh's son's coming to our side. He's got power and prestige and and might and greatness. But no, here comes Moses. 
The guy who killed and then ran off that we haven't seen for 40 years. He's going to come trotting back in. That's because this isn't about the, the resume or the character of Moses. This is about God. God said he was going to do it. God does it. So guess who gets the credit? God. Moses doesn't even get to go in the promised land. And then the climax of this story. God reveals his name. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and the God, he is the one who has sent you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses asked the question, what's your name? What's your name? If I go there to these people and I tell these people that The God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who has sent me to tell you it's time to leave. They're going to ask what your name is. What is your name? And God doesn't say his name. Doesn't give his name. He says, in effect, before you concern yourself with my name, grasp my very being. Before you get my name, get who I am. That pun was not intended. Grasp my unique, absolute being over and against all other beings. Get a hold of that first before I give you my name. Then God adds, I am has sent you. Even here he's not giving his name. He is building a bridge between his being, I am who I am, and his name, Yahweh. Follow me here. This is important. He's saying, here's who I am, and who I am, the great I am, is linked to my name. So you will never be able to think about my name, Yahweh, without it being linked to my unique, absolute being over and against all other beings. Tell them the one who is, who absolutely is, has sent you. Then in verse 15, he gives his name, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is my name forever. So here's what God has done. God has said, here's my being. Here's my nature. Here's who I am. And it is always going to be linked with Yahweh. So you can't think of Yahweh without thinking about me being the great I am. The absolute unique one. That is why in the ESV, if you have the ESV, this may be true for all uh, of the uh, translations that you have. But here in the ESV, that's why it translates I am who I am in all caps. And it translates I am in all caps. The way it does the word Yahweh, which is Lord in all caps. Do you see this? Look, look with me. Verse 
14, I am who I am, all caps. Then in verse 15, I am in all caps. Then in verse, or in verse 14, then in verse 15, it says the Lord, all caps. The reason why these are all capitalized is because what God is doing is he's linking who he is with this name and he can't separate them out. So what that means is every time Israel hears or reads the word Yahweh or Yah for that matter, every time they hear or see or read that, they will be reminded of the unique character of God, the unique, absolute being of God. Every time we see the word Lord, Yahweh in our Old Testaments, every time we read the English word, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, we know that's Yahweh. That is the one who is and will always be. That is the great I am. That is the one that says, I am that I am. This name, Yahweh, is used 6,800 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And if we were, if we had the time, to look through all 6,800 uses of this term and put together the, the nature or the character that is always linked around it, we would find some things that are true. John Piper, in his book, Providence, Lays out 10 of them. And I want to I give them to you because I think they're, he does a great job summing up these 6,800 times. Now, this is not all of them, but this is a summary of, of what we mean when we use the word Yahweh. When God said, I am Yahweh, I am that I am, the great I am, this is what we find out about him in the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. God never has a beginning. God never has an end. God is absolute reality, and there is no reality outside of him. God is absolutely independent. He depends upon nothing. Everything depends totally on God. Six, all the universe is nothing when compared to God. Seven, God is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Eight, God is the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty in the universe. Nine, God does whatever he pleases and it is always right. Ten, God is the most important and most valuable person in the universe. When we use the term Yahweh, we mean at least those 10 things. Never has a beginning, never has an end. He is absolute reality. He is completely independent. Everyone depends upon him. All the universe is nothing compared to him. He is constant. He is absolute truth, beauty, and, and goodness. He does what he pleases, and it's always right. God is the most important and most valuable person in the universe. Tell them, that is who sent you, Moses. That's who sent you. This is the message of the name Yahweh. Now Moses is going to go on to doubt himself. 
And we can go all the way down to verse 17 of chapter 4 with all the doubts that he gives and all the signs that God reveals to him and wonders that he demonstrates to let him know, Moses, this plan is going to be successful and not because of you, but because of me. I want my name known. I want it known in Israel and I want it known in Egypt. This name that I just gave you, these characteristics that we just read off, these 10 things, God wants that known in Israel and he wants it known in Egypt. But the truth is, Israel and Egypt are not a large enough audience for Yahweh. What God is going to do, Israel and Egypt is not a large enough audience. There needs to be a larger audience, a larger exodus. And that is why Yahweh, the great I am, wraps himself in human form. He wants the whole world to know his name, to know his being, and not just to know him, but worship him. I'm revealing myself to you, Moses, because I want Israel and I want Egypt to know who I am. But I still got a bigger plan than even that, Moses. And I'm not even going to tell you what it is yet. But for generations and generations to come, they're going to find out that Israel and Egypt are not a large enough audience for what I'm going to do. I want every tribe and nation and language and tongue to know who I am, to know my name and to know my being. And I want all of them to worship me. So I'm going to send God wrapped in flesh. And when Jesus shows up, this idea of Yahweh takes on a whole nother level. In John chapter 8, I'm going to read from there in just a moment. The association with I am. With the name Yahweh. Is connected. To the I am motifs in the gospel of John. John has Jesus saying a lot of I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. These motifs that are used by Jesus are linked to the name and the being of Yahweh. None more evident than John chapter 8. We'll start in verse 48. The Jews answered Jesus... Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater 
than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So the one that you claim to be your God, Yahweh, he glorifies me. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. When Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, he's claiming to be Yahweh. There is um, a lot of religions. Uh, Islam is one of them. That makes the claim, and, and Islam has to do this because um, the prophet Muhammad actually spoke um, very highly of the New Testament and said it was God's word. And so um, Islam has to find ways around the clear teaching of the New Testament that Jesus is God. And so Islam will say things like, "There is show me in the New Testament where Jesus said he is God. Well, if they had understanding of this name Yahweh and the absolute being that was behind this name Yahweh, they'd be able to read John 8 and see it clearly for themselves. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he is claiming to be Yahweh. Another reason why I know this is true is because of the reaction of the people. they pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy. What blasphemy? He just claimed to be God. He just claimed to be Yahweh. He just claimed to be the one that appeared to Moses. He claimed to exist before Abraham, our father. This man has to die for these blasphemies. We got to kill this man. He's claiming to be God. C.S. Lewis was correct when he wrote in Mere Christianity, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let none of you be patronizing and say the nonsense about him being just a great human teacher. He's either crazy. He's demon possessed. Or... He is who he said he was. He is Yahweh. He is God. And if Jesus is who he says he is, 
then that makes all the statements about Yahweh in the Old Testament, 6,800 times the name is used, all of the the characteristics and the, the testimony of his being, all of those are true of Jesus, which means Jesus has no beginning. Jesus has no end. Jesus is absolute reality, and there is no reality outside of him. Jesus is absolutely independent and depends upon nothing. Everything depends totally on Jesus. All the universe is nothing when compared to Jesus. Jesus is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty. Jesus does whatever he pleases and what he pleases is right. And Jesus is the most important and most valuable person in the universe. That's what he was declaring of himself when he said before Abraham was, I am. This is who I am. And you call me a demon. This is who I am. And you say you know Yahweh. No, you don't. If you knew Yahweh, you'd recognize me. And you'd do what Thomas does. Fall down at his feet and say, my Lord and my God. Not just my rabbi. My Lord and my God. This story of the Exodus is not just about the Hebrew Exodus. This is about the Exodus of the world. Being saved from sin. Being brought out, being drawn out of sin and into the kingdom of God. Into the promised land. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when Yahweh in the flesh returns? When the great I am comes back. You know, we sang that song a while ago, Our God is Greater. How will we sing that song on the new earth? My goodness, with what fervor and excitement and zeal will we sing Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than any other. No one stood against us in one. Why? Because of our resume? (laughs) Not because of our resume. Because of the name and being of Yahweh. That we... Got to see in the flesh. And y'all, here's the ridiculous thing. And it's just ridiculous. God the Father, Yahweh, looks at his son, Yahweh, and says, because you wrapped yourself in flesh and died for the sin of the world, and because you have ransomed a people from every tribe, nation, language... Because you've gathered them all up, I am making everything your inheritance as the God-man. Everything is yours. And Yahweh the Son turns to his brothers and sisters that he has saved and says, I'm the most benevolent king there has ever been. 
I'm going to give everything I've inherited to you. And we get everything that the Yahweh the Son has, we get it all. See, this kingdom of God stuff, this this is not just some mythical language we use. God is making the universe and specifically earth as His temple. He's making earth the kingdom of God. It's heaven and earth coming together in Jesus. It's coming together. So when Jesus comes back, this entire earth and the universe will be perfected and we will rule and reign with him forever. That is the promised land. That's what we get. Makes sense now when Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. He wasn't joking around. Literally, the meek will inherit the earth. And this story of being drawn out to be put in has its roots when Moses meets Yahweh in a bush that won't burn up. We trace the story back there. Our God is greater. There is no one like him. And Jesus is the most important and valuable person in the universe. And if you have never come to that realization, if you have never come to the realization that Jesus has to be your everything, I call you to repent today. You will be satisfied beyond your wildest imaginations. You will be content beyond your wild imaginations. It's not about a religion. It's not about certain kinds of ways we do things and a way a different church does things. It is about Jesus. And that's who we need. The great I am has offered himself to us. May we fall at his feet and say, my Lord and my God.